Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we're with Carolyn Wynn, who's the CEO of San Diego Gas and Electric. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. Of course. I want to start off with the top of mind concern for a lot of folks in California with um, fire season coming upon us. Um, and, and there have been a lot of initiatives undertaken by by utilities across the state of California, including yours, um, and the state and uh, local government. Are you hopeful about the outcome this year will be different from the last few years? And uh, what new is going to be tried this summer? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And listen, uh, wildfire risk is always something that we're concerned about. And, you know, it, it's our top risk that we've been working to mitigate over for over a decade. Um, we've invested significant uh, amount of capital into our system over the past 10 years to ensure that we mitigate the risk of wildfire. But I think more importantly, we've also invested significantly in our tools to give us better situational awareness. So now we have weather stations throughout our entire service territory, probably one of the densest weather networks of any utility. And it's giving us uh, 30 second real time data on the wind conditions, on the humidity levels. We have fuel sticks uh, out in our areas of our territory. We have uh, mountaintop cameras that with high definition so we are alerted, um, you know, up to 10 days in advance to give us that time to prepare when we believe that these uh, wildfire Santa Ana wind conditions are coming. And that has been differential for us because it's allowed us to perform a number of activities from pre-patrolling our lines to uh, ensuring that our customers are not surprised when these type of weather conditions occur and um, that kind of awareness, you know, to allow our nonprofits to be able to reach out to their constituents through the channels that they get information, that has been differential for us. So um, a significant amount of investment in, our, in improving our situational awareness and knowing when this weather is coming. And in addition to strategically undergrounding our overhead lines and our high-risk area and hardening and changing out our wood poles to weather-resistant steel poles and larger conductor with larger spacing, all of those things. In addition to, we've also added aerial assets so that if a fire was to occur, regardless of the cause, we have aerial assets that um, we have purchased or leased um, that CAL FIRE, our local fire agency, has access to, and they're the ones that dispatch that to any type of fire. And, And one of those assets is one of the largest firefighting helicopters in the world. So, uh, we, we have done a lot to prepare for uh, climatizing our system for the last 10 years. So, Carolyn, as I see it, there are two aspects of the problem. One is climate change and weather patterns shifting. And the other is avoiding unnecessary blackouts due to fire uh, to the extent that you can. Can you segregate those two questions? One, is it inevitable that there's going to be a bad fire season this year? 
or are some of the steps you're taking to spot fires early, uh, are you hopeful that it will prevent fires from getting out of control? And two, uh, about the blackout situation, uh, do you think you're better prepared to, to avoid that kind of scenario? Well, Marty, um, the, the first question is around the drought. And certainly the drought and the very warm um, summer that we expect is exacerbating the situation. So likely see those grass fires earlier in the year than we normally would. And so, yes, the, the, the drought conditions are adding to the, the fire potential. Um, so we have gotten our teams ready early but, you know, wildfires in California are, you know, almost a year-round type event. So uh, we're always prepared, but uh, we have done a, a number of things different this year to prepare for a very active fire season. Uh, probably, you know, last year was very active as well, I would tell you. And um, we had a number of, of these red flag days where uh, the National Weather Service calls for these uh, unusually, you know, extreme uh, fire weather conditions. And, um, you know, we're all hands on deck. And last year was a little different because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, we operated our emergency operations center for the most part virtually. And I would tell you that, that you know, we successfully were able to um, convert the technology and we practiced it and we drilled it so that every employee was ready for the situation that we were facing. Um, so that, that's the answer to the first part of the question that I think the drought and combined with the warmer uh, weather, which we're having this week in California and probably much of the Western states, is is causing the the fire activity and the fire potential to start earlier in the season. Um, the second question, can you remind me of the second question, Marty? Well, to, to put a point on it, do you anticipate having to have rolling blackouts to avoid electrifying areas that are going to be hit by high winds? So the rolling blackouts that you mentioned uh, is something that we call in California the public safety power shutoffs. And we use it as a last resort tool that if the wind conditions are such that they're extreme and it's endangering uh, communities, we will utilize our public safety power shutoffs. At SDG&E and our service territory and our customers, I th we, since we've been working at this for over a decade, we've been able to be highly surgical in the neighborhoods that we have to turn off and we only do it to the most endangered neighborhoods uh, that are experiencing these types of conditions. We've installed a number of what we call sectionalizing devices. And this is a device that can really turn off one branch instead of the whole entire circuit. Um, and and they're all mostly all remotely controlled, so we could do it fairly quickly. And so this has been something that our teams have been working on and really dedicated for the last, I would tell you, three years to really, you know, ensure that we only perform these public safety power shutoffs to the most endangered communities uh, that are um, having the most endangered types of weather conditions. And with the number of the weather stations that we have combined with these sectionalizing devices, we can tell that in one circuit, you could have, you know, 10, 20, 30 mile an hour difference in wind conditions. So having a, a, a more surgical approach has helped us ensure, again, that only the, the most endangered communities are turned off. Great. Uh, turning to 
other issues. Um, for our listeners who are outside of California, could you ble- briefly sketch the state's renewable energy objectives and uh, how that's affecting your utility and uh, and your customers? Sure. In, in California, we do have legislation that um, um, we we've seen for you know for years now that has um, prompted the utilities to provide renewable energy to our customers. In fact, um, we were one of the first utilities, or the first utility to exceed the 40% renewable energy to our customers. And the, the goal is uh, 100% by 2045? 2045, right. The goal is 100% by 2045. Are you going to get there or are you going to get there earlier? Or what, what, do you, what do you say? I think that for us, uh, it's about making sure we have the resiliency combined with meeting the, the renewable goals. So it's important for us to make sure that, you know, even on these days when um, the sun's not shining or stops shining, you know, late in the afternoon, in the early evening, and the wind stop is not blowing, that we can keep the, the system going on days like this week when it's going to be 100 plus degrees. So so that's really the engineering uh problem that we're trying to solve and model and make sure that we have those resilient systems like, you know, having uh, uh, natural gas that, you know, we are working to clean up and work uh, on some hydrogen uh, pilot projects to see how hydrogen blending can work and how, you know, it's a promising technology that I think can be a game changer for California as you know, California frequently curtails solar production because the supply far exceeds demand in the middle of the day. And even last year, I think California curtailed nearly you know, 1.6 megawatt hours of renewable energy. And there have been times when California had to pay neighboring states to take its excess solar energy to avoid overloading our power lines. So I think that, that I believe that hydrogen is a huge opportunity for our entire sector and, you know, already in use in a wide range of sectors such as industrial processes, metals refining, you know, and it's a promising fuel for heavy transport as well, I think. Talk about storage. Um, there are reports that California will need upwards of 55,000 megawatts of storage to complement renewables. Um, is that doable? And what does it mean for San Diego and its customers? You know, in recent years, we've been uh, rapidly expanding our portfolio of energy storage capacity to strengthen grid reliability and to really maximize the use of renewable energy. And, and you know, our portfolio at SDG&E goes beyond lithium-ion batteries. It includes some emerging technologies like a, we have a vanadium re- redox flow battery and an iron flow battery. And so soon we'll also pilot hydrogen for long-duration energy storage and our vanadium redox flow battery became the first utility scale battery of its kind to be connected to the California independent system operator market in 2018. And we recently extended our flow battery demonstration project so that we could test the battery as a means to achieve zero emission microgrids. So, you know, our our project is really a proving ground for integrating flow batteries with microgrids and and we've been investing in various battery technologies uh, for a decade, starting in 2012. You know, in 2017, we went big and built what was then the largest lithium-ion battery storage project in the world. 
And I think the same year we launched it, that two megawatt vanadium redux flow battery demonstration project. So, you know, by the end of this year or early next year, we expect to have, you know, 135 plus megawatts of utility owned storage online, which will actually triple our, our capacity. And as we speak, we're also commissioning a lithium ion facility that we started in construction with another lithium ion facility in April. So we have, we have lots of batteries coming online. And I think at this point, energy storage's technology is still in its infancy and most batteries on the market last only a matter of hours. So the holy grail is really long duration energy storage that can really provide backup power during extended power outages and help to synchronize supply and demand across the seasons. And Are you banking on that being available by 2045 or if not sooner? Absolutely. You know, that's why, Marty, we believe that piloting these new technologies is important to do now so that we understand what, what will work and, and won't work. And, um, you know, we're beginning construction on that, a green hydrogen project, which will pilot hydrogen as a long duration energy storage as, as part of the pi uh, pilot, we're going to install hydrogen storage containers that can support over 10 hours of energy storage for a fuel cell. And, um, you know, this project will be co-located with one of our microgrids in a remote desert town in our service territory, and we'll be able to leverage the plentiful solar energy really available to produce green hydrogen. So, you know, lots of new technology and innovations on the horizon that will need to be developed for everyone to meet, you know, these very aggressive but but um, needed goals, you know, in the next two or three decades. I remember talking with Mike Nigley um, close to a decade ago about how EV adoption was going in San Diego. Um, and he was uh, kind of startled. So tell me where you are today and where you see that going. Uh, sure, we're we're very um, we're proud of the work that that we're doing on EV adoption. I would say, you know, over the past decade, we've made enormous strides in electrifying the transportation sector. I think um, electric vehicles in our region is more of a common sight, just like rooftop solar is in San Diego, and throughout much of California. You know, in 2010, maybe when you talk to Mike Nigley. Uh, you know, there were less than 800 battery electric and plug-in hybrid cars in California. Now, you know, I think the end of last year, California had more than 600,000 electric vehicles. So, you know, over an 800-fold increase. And our service territory has really experienced similar hockey stick growth in EV adoption. And, uh, you know, we've made up about 10... We in San Diego make up about 10% of California's population and we have around 60,000 EVs on the road in our service territory. And over the past decade, uh, we've developed a robust portfolio of EV charging infrastructure programs to support electrification, you know, a full spectrum of vehicles and equipment, whether it's light duty, medium duty, heavy duty, including trucks, school buses, transit buses, and forklifts. And, you know, we're, we're bringing chargers to multi-unit dwellings, office buildings, municipal facilities, schools, parks, beaches, airport facilities, delivery hubs, and other, you know, commercial sites. And today we, uh, we leaned in early um, and we've built over 3,000 chargers. And the coming years, we expect to build thousands more in our region to help California's really ambitious clean transportation goals. Like, you know, according to uh, one of the analysis I've seen to, to meet Governor Newsom's goal for light duty vehicles, 
we need 1.5 million chargers statewide or, or 20 times more than what we currently have right now. And, and so we have a long way to go and we think, you know, we're trying to get there as quickly as we can while also maintaining a focus on equity, right? We're taking extra measures to ensure that EV charging infrastructure gets installed in communities of concern. And, um, and we, you know, I, that's very important. And we know that we need allies to move the needle. So, you know, over the past year, we've helped create a regional collaborative effort called Accelerate to Zero Emissions. And this coalition really brought together local cities, counties, and our regional transportation planning agency to drive resources and investments around a unified EV strategy. And, uh, you know, it seems like almost every week you hear about car manufacturers, both established brands and startups, adding to the lineup of battery, electric, and plug-in hybrids. And, you know, I believe the EV prices are going to continue to drop, putting them, you know, within the reach of more and more consumers. You have uh, incentives to to encourage use of charging off-peak. How successful has that been? And how is it cha- challenging your, your company to meet this growing demand for electrification of vehicles? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the, um, as part of our program to install that we, we've called Power Your Drive, and we've in the over 3,000 chargers we've already installed, it's on a uh, day ahead rate where the, the rates change every hour depending on the, the electrical demand of that circuit. So it really does incent customers to charge in the middle of the day when we have an abundance of energy. And it disincents charging at our more peak hours after this when the sun is going down. So, you know, between four and nine. So uh, that that's an innovative way to help get our customers to charge their vehicles. So like for myself, I'm on a rate for my home where I charge my vehicle between midnight and 5 a.m. And, uh, you know, I, I believe it's somewhere in the nine tenths cents a kilowatt hour, which is equivalent to, you know, 75, 80 cents per gallon of gas. And if you compare that comparatively in California, compared to over $4, you know, that, that that's quite economic and it's charging my vehicle at the right time of the day. How has this EV uh, advancement meshed with your overall electrification of your market as as folks are trying to get away from fossil fuels? Are, are you seeing a lot more reliance on, on electricity and what are you doing to promote that? You know, California has been, I think, ground zero for transportation electrification. And, you know, we, we've we uh, been at the forefront of the movement, I think, which is key to achieving carbon neutrality. And, uh, you know, getting there requires reimagining the transportation sector, uh, which in California is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, you know, with over 40%. So not surprisingly, electrification is gaining the most momentum in the transportation space. Uh, but, you know, there, there's also uh, a lot of work going on, you know, besides clean transportation. And, and the challenge ahead of us is how do we manage the electrification of everything, the cars, the buildings, and other facets of our economy in parallel with the efforts to decarbonize and harden the grid against the climate stress that we talked about earlier, you know, all without compromising reliability or affordability. And, you know, we can't get to where we need to get to without you know, investment in modernizing our energy system. And, you know, we're making unprecedented investments while also pursuing some innovative, you know, public and private partnerships. And 
And, you know, we've received several federal and state grants to advance microgrid technologies. And we've been fortunate to have the NREL or the National Renewable Energy Laboratory as a partner in this effort. And most recently, our parent company, Sempra, announced a, a memorandum of understanding with NREL to research and develop innovative solutions to help shape a lower carbon future. So we're definitely appreciative of the Department of Energy's leadership in this area, for sure. Well, in addition to having 1.4 million electric metered customers, you have 873,000 gas metered customers. Is there a... Talk, talk about what this move towards electrification means and how it complicates a business such as yours, which has a large customer base using natural gas. Do you see any need to evolve them away from natural gas over the decades to come? How is that going to play out? Well, as we talked about earlier in terms of grid resiliency, we do see see a need for um, clean fuels to be part of part of the equation to get to 100% renewables and which is why we're we're piloting early some of these hydrogen projects that we're working on i would say you know in terms of our 800,000 plus gas customers our job is to keep that system safe and reliable and continue to invest in best practices to to be able to do that and we've been very focused on that while also being uh, thoughtful and disciplined to how do you clean up your your fuel sources? How do you clean up natural gas? How can we use hydrogen or renewable natural gas as uh, opportunities to really clean clean up natural gas? Because it is an affordable choice and an affordable commodity for customers. And you know many customers prefer natural gas. You know when cooking or heating or fireplaces or or all of that. So. Um, you know, it, it's important that that we continue to uh, make sure that 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 system is safe and reliable, and we're continuing to to do so. Well, let me ask a, maybe a simple question, maybe a stupid question, but thirty, forty years from now, will those eight hundred seventy-five thousand customers potentially be on hydrogen for their home as opposed to natural gas? Uh, yeah, very, very possible. You know, it, it, one of our strategies is all around clean fuels. So how do we think about hydrogen blending in our power plants, right? And, and there's a lot of work going on in Europe and a lot of great demonstration projects where they're doing a significant amount of hydrogen blending. So, so we do think that, you know, we need to accelerate decarbonization of the gas system with the clean molecules. Green hydrogen, again, green hydrogen, renewable natural gas, as well as the advancement of these long duration energy storage and carbon capture technologies. And, you know, achieving this carbon neutrality is going to require, I believe, embracing a wide range of solutions, including reimagining our existing gas infrastructure. The kind of reimagining that's taking place at a utility is changing its business model uh, in profound ways. And you, you sit on the board of SEPA, the Smart Electric Power Alliance, and they've launched the Utility Transformation Challenge Talk a little bit about what it what it signifies and how it will affect you at at SDG&A. Well, you know, the, the energy industry arguably is facing more disruption in the past decade than it has in the past century, right? And I think at 
SDG&A, we believe that we have to embrace disruptions to drive reinvention and innovation. I, that's the most exciting part of my job and our jobs working in the utility is embracing that innovation, which is really a cultural imperative for us at SDG&E. And, um, you know, we've long recognized that it's not just enough to keep the lights on and the gas flowing. Our customers, our regulators, our investors, our shareholders, the communities where, you know, we all live and work and, and our company values, you know, demand that we do much more. So, you know, just beyond delivering clean, safe, and reliable energy, we're really committed to playing an active role in facilitating a just and equitable clean energy transition. And, you know, we're committed to advancing broader social and racial equality. And our commitment, you know, has only strengthened in light of what's happened over the past years. So, they think about it, you know, sustainability and equity are really built in every corner of our operations and into everything we do. So not just where we place EV chargers and not just which vendors we partner with to procure goods and services, but also, you know, how do we direct our charitable contributions where we plant trees and where we conduct outreach to promote customer assistance programs. And so I would tell you, our entire workforce is really focused on ESG uh, principles and uh, will you know that will only continue to to de- develop over time. You joined the utility back in 1986 as an engineer. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, now you sit in the CEO seat. So a lot worked in terms of, of your talent and vision being rewarded, but. Uh, Talk a little bit about the path you've taken to get there and how you'd like to change it for women that are entering the workforce now or in the next few years. You know, that's a, this is a topic that's near and dear to my, my heart. And certainly when I graduated from college, I was one of just, I think, one or two females in, in my class. So, um, it, it, again, something something near and dear, near and dear to my heart. So, you know, one of my passions is to inspire more girls, particularly those, you know, from communities of concern or underserved communities and, and communities of color to really pursue careers in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And and while we've made great progress over the years and in women in general, I think, and particularly women of color, I think they're still severely underrepresented in STEM. And in college, you know, again, I was only many times the only women in these engineering class. So one of the things that I, I launched here in San Diego is called an initiative hashtag be that girl. And we started it in 2018 to really recruit more young girls into STEM professionals at, at you know, and we've done, we've recruited women at SDG&E that have STEM professions to serve as these role models and mentors for for girls. So our women leaders in engineering and meteorology and finance, environmental science, and other fields, they share their personal journeys from grade school to their careers out to, you know, community groups, whether it's Girl Scouts or whether it's the Boys and Girls Club. And, you know, last year we had almost 250 Be That Girl role models that took part in these virtual career fairs. So the, the notion is if someone sees that someone like you could succeed, you know, in a STEM world where sometimes there's a stigma that it's only for boys and you could talk about your own experience that it will, you know, start start to change their career trajectory of what, what they think is possible. And so this is something that, that uh, is, is 
very fulfilling for me, and it and it's been very, I think, differential. Um, I I know several cases, and there's probably so much more out there of young girls who have changed their their career progressions because of the work that we're doing. So I'm a huge advocate of that. Do you think women will face the challenges of of utilities and climate change in a different way from men? Um, uh, you know, I think, I think generally, uh, uh, there are differences between, you know, how women and men attack problems, but I, I think generally, uh, it's going to take everybody to tackle these climate challenges. It's going to take all types. It's going to take women. It's going to take men. It's going to take people of different diversities. It takes different thinking. And, um, again, something I'm passionate about is, is, you know, you need that diversity of thought. You need the, the diversity of where you come from to solve these really wicked hard problems. And so I, I believe it's going to take everybody to be able to solve, solve these really tough issues and be able to, to build the next new technology or innovate the next new, new um, you know, product or policy or best practice to be able to solve the climate change uh, challenges and to meet the these uh, you know lofty but necessary goals that our states and our country and the world world needs to to combat climate change. Thanks, Carolyn. Well, thank you, Marty. I've enjoyed talking to you. Appreciate the time. Great, and thanks all for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking with Carolyn Wynn, who's the CEO of San Diego Gas and Electric. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.